Hi, this is Sophia Ruan Goucher, author of the critically acclaimed book, A to Z of Detoxing, The Ultimate Guide to Reducing Our Toxic Exposures, and host of this practical non-toxic living podcast. Welcome! The Practical Non-Toxic Living Podcast is sponsored by the Ruan Detox Immersion and the Detox Academy. The Ruan Detox Immersion is a structured program during which we'll customize a roadmap to detox four main pillars of your life, your home, diet, self-care, and technology. Together, we'll craft a plan to detox the risky chemicals, heavy metals, and electromagnetic fields that you won't miss. The Ruan Detox Immersion is wonderful not only for those of you looking to optimize your family's healthy living and environmental sustainability efforts, but also for those dealing with hormone imbalances, unexplained infertility, pregnancy, children, and compromised immune systems from things like cancer and autoimmune issues. For certain professionals like nutritionists, health coaches, physicians, nurses, and even interior designers, the Ruan Detox Immersion can enhance and distinguish your offerings and services. Learn more about this unique offering at ruanliving.com. It's being offered just once in 2020, starting April 1st. There's limited capacity, so apply now. In today's world, practical non-toxic living is as important as healthy eating, regular exercise, and good sleep. So if you're not ready for a detox deep dive, which is the Ruan Detox Immersion, but would like simple tips to get started, then my online detox academy found at nontoxicliving.tips offers two essential workshops to lead your way. They are called Home Detox and EMF Detox. They outline tips that are not only high impact and practical, but most won't impact your budget. At the Detox Academy, you can also enjoy monthly live Q&As to ask me anything about practical non-toxic living. The easiest way to learn more about any of this and to stay connected is to register for my newsletter. Just text 66866 enter code podcast, then enter your email address. And that's it. Hope to see you online at the Detox Academy. Dr. Esther Sternberg served for 26 years in the National Institutes of Health Intramural Research Program as Senior Scientist and Section Chief of Neuroendocrine Immunology and Behavior at the National Institute of Mental Health. She has too many other impressive accomplishments to list here, but currently she holds the inaugural Andrew Wild Chair for Research in Integrative Medicine and is Research Director for the Andrew Wild Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona at Tucson. I learned of Dr. Sternberg through her must-read book, Healing Spaces, The Science of Place and Well-Being, which was recognized by the president of the American Institute of Architects as an inspiration for launching its design and health initiative. Dr. Sternberg's book, Healing Spaces, definitely inspired me to rethink home as an opportunity to decrease stress and support our immune systems and feel-good hormones. 
As you listen to our conversation, you'll learn about key design features to consider to transform your home into an environment that can support your health and well-being. My family and I have been under, we've been under renovation for uh, at least three years. <laughs> that's a, talk about a stress, stressor. And I didn't even realize the stress it had on me until it was over because, you know, you just need to get through it. And in the fall, in September, the renovation activity stopped significantly. And Uh I decided I'm going to reclaim my home. And what was interesting is I started to notice how much the the benefits of claiming my space. And it included a lot of plants. It includes uh-huh. a lot of natural, I really wanted natural stones and natural uh-huh. woods. And then I came across your book somehow, Healing <laughs> Spaces. That's great. The Science of Place and Well-Being. And for <laughs> you to talk about how what I, how our senses, what we see, hear, smell, and other things, how it affects our brain, our immune response, our hormones, the electrical signaling. It was very exciting for me to read this book. And I know you, and then I went online and I saw your wonderful TED Talk and some other talks you've done online. And I wrote a blog post talking about, and even sharing videos of how Amazon and Microsoft have incorporated these ideas into their new headquarters. Right. Parts of me were screaming, but what about our homes? Like what about, you're right. what about the opportunity to create your home into a healing space? Right. So every right. night you reset and you're stronger and more resilient to go back into the world. Yeah, yeah. So I'll start by telling you a story of how I uh, I realized yeah, I was writing the book and I, I was researching how we perceive everything around us, whether it's our home or our workspace or our uh, schools or the outdoors, through all our senses, what we see and what we hear and what we smell and what we touch, what we taste, what we do in a space, all affects our emotions and how we heal. But in my own life, I didn't realize, I was going through a renovation too, and... <laughs> And um, I had moved into a new house and, and I was renovating the deck, which was totally falling apart. You could put your finger through the wood and, and you know, it, the, 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 the contractor said the only thing you should put on top of this deck is air and, uh, you know, not people. And um, so I designed the deck. I said how far I wanted it to go out and what it would look like. And the railing should be wrought iron and it should have a spiral staircase to go down. It was one level above the ground. And only when I was finished did I realize I had redesigned my mother's deck. I wasn't consciously aware of it. And even to the extent that I had a beautiful holly bush, old, old holly bush, and the, and the contractor said, well, you'd be better off with a, a larger deck. And I said, no, no, absolutely not. The holly bush has to stay there. So the deck is smaller because of where the holly bush was. My mother had done the same thing, you know, 40 years before where she didn't want a bigger deck because there was a beautiful old lilac tree. So I think 
the, the story illustrates that we're often not consciously aware of how our space, physical space, and the place around us, our homes, affect our emotions, how they tap into memories, deep, deep memories of childhood, for example. So, you know, why does a home speak to you? when you see it. I, when I saw this house, I immediately wanted to buy it because, and this was in Washington, D.C., and I didn't know why it spoke to me. And only after I redesigned the deck did I realize it had elements of my mother's home, of the home where I grew up in. And, and I think that most people, if you're not an architect, you're not consciously aware of how that physical environment impacts your memories, your emotions, your, uh, and then ultimately healing, because there is a connection between the brain and the immune system. This was the work that I was doing, I've been doing for now 40 some years, proving that there really is a connection between the brain and the immune system. And that when that connection is intact, you have health. And when you break that connection, you have disease. So in my first book, which was published about 10 years before the Healing Spaces, The Science of Place and Well-Being, I talk about that piece of the mind-body connection. It's called The Balance Within, The Science Connecting Health and Emotions. And when I started in this field, there was a lot of pushback from the, um, from the powers that be in the scientific and medical community who said that, no, 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 the brain and the immune system don't talk to each other. Uh, that, that was heresy. Uh, and, and I and, and a small group of other researchers did the science that proved that there really is a connection between the brain and the immune system. In the balance within the, my first book, The Science Connecting Health and Emotions, I described the research that was done over the years to really prove how the brain and the immune system talk to each other, which shows how stress can make you sick, how believing can make you well. And that led to the next book, Healing Spaces, The Science of Place and Well-Being, that really takes those concepts out into the physical world and how all those different elements of the physical world can impact your emotions and in turn, your ability to heal. So, you know, just to, to tell you when you are stressed, so how does stress make you sick? When you're stressed, you release a whole lot of chemicals, nerve chemicals from nerve endings, hormones uh, from the brain and the adrenal glands. And ultimately, those hormones and nerve chemicals, cortisol, adrenaline, adrenaline-like nerve chemicals, all they, they cause what the feelings that you have inside of you when you feel stressed, your heart beating fast, um, you, you're anxious, you're sweating, you want to run to the bathroom. That's all caused by that physiological stress response. And those same chemicals, those same hormones affect the immune system and tamp down the immune system's ability to do its job, to fight infections, to fight cancer, to help wound healing. Um, and people who are chronically stressed will have uh, more severe and more frequent viral infections. If you go out to get a flu shot, if you're a chronically stressed caregiver, for example, of an Alzheimer's patient, um, then you're less likely to have a good take rate of vaccine because your immune system can't mount that response. If you get, if you have a wound, if you have surgery, there's 
poor wound healing. Wound healing can take two weeks longer in a chronically stressed person than somebody who's not stressed. Um, it speeds chromosomal aging. People who are chronically stressed, their chromosomes can look 10 to 17 years older than your chronological age, which is you know, a big difference. And the uh, cancer growth, it can speed chronic stress through these hormones and nerve chemicals can speed cancer growth. So just to emphasize, stress does not cause all these conditions. Stress makes them worse or speeds them up through all these nerve chemicals and stress hormones. So to the extent that the environment can also stress you, it can contribute to making you sick. And to the extent that we can control our environment, we can design the environment to optimize uh, health, to reduce stress, to actually enhance the positive. And just what you were saying, that the kinds of things around you, that the natural stone, the plants, uh, plants, natural plants, views of nature are very important in reducing stress and optimizing those uh, positive emotions, which in turn release positive hormones and nerve chemicals in the brain, in the reward pathways of the brain, uh, dopamine, opioid, uh, opiates that the endogenous brain creates, these endorphins. So all these feel-good hormones and nerve chemicals are released when you're looking at a beautiful view or you're in nature or you're breathing deeply and that helps to reduce your stress response. So there, and we can talk about the elements of the physical environment that help get you into that relaxed state to help reduce your stress. That would be great. I would love to also just pause and talk about that even images of nature can be healing. That was, that was interesting and surprising and it's exciting because not everyone can get a view of nature, but- Abs Absolutely, right, absolutely. So, so of course it's better to be in nature because you have all of your senses. You can be inhaling the wonderful fragrance of the, of the uh, blossoms or the trees or the wet grass after a rain or here in Tucson, after we smell the creosote bushes after a rain, which is a very sweet uh, smell. Um, so being in nature is the best, but if you can't be in nature, yes, absolutely, views of nature uh, can certainly turn on those positive responses in the brain. And uh, in my, I did a PBS television special called The Science of Healing, which uh, what we did is we went, visited a lot of different labs around the country that are researching these different uh, questions. And it was based on my own story of going through a period of stress, getting arthritis, and then healing, which I'll tell you in a minute. But in the process of doing this television show, we, I was the guinea pig and I had my brain scanned in, a, in an MRI and while I was looking at either beautiful images of nature or uh, ugly smokestacks or, you know, uh, junkyards and so on, um, Irving Biederman at the University of Southern California does this work. And what he's found is that when you look at a beautiful view, and, and this is across cultures, across ages, gender, uh, socioeconomic status, whatever. 
people who look at a beautiful view have a positive reaction and the preferred views are views of nature. And the part, there is a part of the brain that specializes in beautiful views. And it's called the parahippocampal cortex. It has a big long name, but it's a part of the brain that's sort of underneath your, your, your brain. When you, when you look at the view, it goes to your eyes, it goes to the back of your brain, through the optic nerve, to the optical cortex, and then it goes through back to the front to this part of the brain that is rich in endorphins. And Irving Biederman's theory is that the reason we all want to look at a beautiful view, the reason we all feel better when we look at a beautiful view is because you're giving yourself a shot of those feel-good endorphins when you look at the view. So we don't know if that's, that's uh, the true theory, the explanation, but it makes a lot of sense to me. Did you also talk about fractals? I thought that was yes. very interesting. And the, and it might be worth talking about because if you're thinking about interior design, you maybe want to incorporate this idea. Yeah, yeah that's true. So fractals are repeating geometries at every scale that occur in nature, and they occur, occur in other places, but uh, think of uh, veins on a leaf, leaves on a branch, uh, tw uh, leaves on a twig, twigs on a branch, branches on a tree. And all those are similar uh, geometries, but at increasing scales. It's the same as snowflakes, um, the same as trees in a forest. Uh, so they're complex geometry patterns uh, that we see over and over again. And again, we don't know why people like to look at these fractals, but people find them calming. So there was a study done by Japanese scientists in uh, the Rianji's temple in Kyoto, uh, where there was a beautiful temple garden with rocks arranged in a certain way in the 14th century. And uh, the, the monks who, who arranged this, this garden knew that there was one particular spot where you could stand and look at this rock garden and feel calm. And the, the scientists, this was probably about 10 years ago, they did a study where they analyzed the geometries uh, using computer algorithms and found that in fact, the spot where the monks in the 14th century had said is the best place to stand is exactly where the fractal geometries uh, met, where there was harmony. Uh, and if they rearranged the rocks in a computer image, they lost that, that harmony. So again, we don't know why that is, but people like to look at fractals. So, you know, that speaks to, for example, Hokusai's painting of the wave, where there's a big wave with lots of little foaming, little curlicues, and people in a rowboat, and other people in a rowboat. That kind of repeating pattern seems to be calming. So yes, if you can put those kinds of patterns in your home, uh, that can, can help. It, you don't want to go overboard because then it's not calming anymore. But again, plants, actual plants, if you can't be in nature, if you could put plants I see behind you, you have some plants, <laughs> um, that's, uh, that, that will help. There are some studies that show that uh, a minimum of three plants to up to 37 plants, that's a lot, it depends how big your space is, <laughs> 
uh, can be calming um, is that's that's important too. Uh, your this reminds me in your book you talk about mazes and labyrinths and yes. it was it was very interesting um, and I'd love maybe now to talk about it because you could maybe visually you know when I read your sections in the book about labyrinths and walking meditations I thought this is a great idea for carpets like for a playroom. <laughs> To have like, wow, that's like, a great idea. I think it could be really beautiful and playful, uh, you know, with I, colors. That, you know, I don't think anybody has ever said that to me. I, you know, there's <laughs> you can go online and you can find labyrinths near you. Uh, they're all over the country. They're all over the world, actually. So, so what is a labyrinth? It is a pattern on the floor that looks like a circle. It looks like a little bit like a rose. And you, there's one spot where you enter and you walk around it slowly until you get to the middle. Uh, and then you have to walk out again. But it's, it's calming because really it's a walking meditation. You don't have to think about where you go. On the other hand, a maze is stressful. And why is that? You have to make decisions. In a maze, uh, for example, the, the best description, description of a maze is in chapter four of Harry Potter's um, Goblet of, Goblets of Fire. Uh, my editor, when I was writing my book, said, you've got to put this in there. You have to put something that young people will relate to and like to, to read. And I said, I hadn't read Harry Potter. And she said, well, you've got to read this particular book. It is the best description of a maze, which I think might have been taken from the maze outside of Henry VIII's Hampton Court uh, uh, Palace uh, outside of London, which was built in, in the 1500s. And it's a high, uh, a very high hedge, uh, maybe eight, 10 feet high, so you can't see over the edge. It's thick, so the, the sounds are muffled. And as you enter the maze, you have to find your way through it and, and you come to decision points and you don't know, should I go right, should I go left? And then if it's getting dark, you get anxious. And in the Harry Potter case, he was worried that there are monsters lurking behind every turn. And so this is a very stressful thing. You don't have feedback from your different senses as to where to go. So that's a maze and that's stressful. In fact, mazes have been used in the pharmaceutical industry for maybe a hundred years to test um, the effect of anti-anxiety drugs. Uh, because if an animal in a maze gets, gets anxious, uh, and yet if the drug calms them, then you know that it, it's working. That's, that's one standard animal test in, in ph the pharmaceutical in industry. So mazes are stressful. Labyrinths, on the other hand, are calming because you don't have to think about where you're going. You just walk and it slows you down because you're following this pattern and it helps you to breathe deeply and slowly. So it gets you into a quiet rhythm and that's calming and it is a walking meditation. So usually uh, this actually the, the classic may, uh, labyrinth that is used across the country around the world is based on a, the uh, labyrinth outside in Chartres Cathedral 
just outside of Paris. And it was built by the monks in, a, in about the uh, 13th century. And uh, they used it as a walking prayerful meditation. Uh, it's in the, it's stone laid in the, in the floor of the cathedral and it's extremely well preserved because most of the time the pews are placed over the, the stones and they only remove the pews uh, so that you can actually walk this maze, this, sorry, this labyrinth, um, I, I think every once a month or once a week, something like that. So the labyrinths that are usually used in public spaces here can either copy that labyrinth pattern in stone or brick, uh, or if you don't have the ability to do that, so for example, at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., they have the labyrinth printed on a large canvas and you roll it out. They roll it out every Tuesday night and they have a choir or harpists and it's the most wonderful experience at the National, if you're ever in Washington DC at the National Cathedral, I recommend that you do this one evening. And, and it's just the most calming, soothing experience. So uh, the, the military has actually adopted this in their National Intrepid Centers of Excellence uh, hospitals around the country for wounded warriors with post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury. And the uh, patients and their families and even the staff really get uh, a lot of relaxation and calm uh, out of walking these labyrinths. Well, I think New York City needs a lot more of these. <laughs> Well, and your idea of putting it in the in the playroom is a, is a great idea. We sh you should patent it and and roll them out in the playrooms. You know, so we talked about what we see and not yet. So, yeah. so so again, I'll go back to my own story with um, when I got sick and uh, I, I went through a period of of extreme stress with my mother dying of breast cancer. This was about twenty some years ago. And I was in Washington, D.C., and she was in Montreal, and I was a long-distance caregiver. And um, after, she, actually, during that period, I developed a, a, an inflammatory arthritis, not rheumatoid arthritis, but my joints flared, and I had a lot of pain, and I had trouble walking, and I'd fall, I'd lose my balance. And, and I had knee biopsies and all kinds of, you know, studies. And I was going to go into hospital to get an experimental drug for arthritis. And, and then my mother died. And I felt like I can't deal with hospital anymore. I, I'm just going to leave it alone and do something later. And that's also exactly when I moved into that new house in Washington, D.C. So I had some really major stressors in my life because moving is, is a big stressor as well. And I was sitting uh, at the computer on my deck, on, on that uh, deck that I talked about, um, beginning to write the beginnings of what was going to be my first book. And my neighbors next door uh, saw me on the deck and they came over and they rang the doorbell and, and they're Greek and they brought over Greek food to welcome me to the neighborhood, tzatziki and dolmades and uh, um, all kinds of wonderful uh, Greek food. And they saw me writing and they said, are you a writer? And I said, um, no, I don't know. I, I do research. I, I don't think of myself as a writer. And I said, why did you ask? I asked. 
And they said, oh, because we've always wanted a writer to stay at our cottage in Crete. And I said, I'm a writer. And <laughs> I went with them to Crete, and only for about 10 days, they had this uh, cottage in, in a, a tiny village on the south coast of Crete, the Greek island. Uh, the village was called Lentas. And it, it, it had maybe five or six streets, and, and you couldn't drive in it. You had to leave your car at the edge of the village. And I, I stayed there and gradually began to exercise more, swim in the Mediterranean every day. I was eating healthy Greek food, Mediterranean diet, rich in olive oil and uh, seafood and fresh vegetables. And, um, and I would, when I, when I felt a little more stable, I began to walk to the top of the little hill above the village where there was the ruins of a Greek temple to the Greek god of healing, Asclepius. And on top of the temple, there were the ruins of a Byzantine church. And at top of that, there was a tiny little Greek chapel with icons and, and candles. And I would sit there for hours and just look out at the Mediterranean, the beautiful blue, blue Mediterranean and the white stucco walls and the red fuchsia bougainvillea and listen to the scritch scratch of the gardener uh, across the way, uh, the, the sheep and the goats and the ocean. And, and I didn't realize at the time that that was meditation. That was mindfulness meditation. And I would inhale the wonderful fragrance of the, um, the, the orange blossoms, the, the, the jasmine. They had just this wonderful fragrance. And, and it just was so calming. And again, I didn't realize at that time what it was that made me feel calm. But it was all of those things, what I heard and what I smelled and the exercise climbing up the hill and just being in the moment. And again, when I came back home and I sat on my deck and I said to myself, you know, I can't be in Greece all the time, but I can recreate some of this here. So I on purpose put jasmine trees, little jasmine bushes, and uh, 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 fragrant plants, uh, herbs that had the fragrance that reminded me of Greece. And then I thought deeper into my memory, why is this so calming? Why is the smell of orange blossoms so calming to me? And it reminded me that my mother in her garden had mock orange bushes in, in Montreal, where I grew up. Um, you don't have uh, citrus trees in the winter, it's too cold. But uh, she had mock orange bushes that sounded, that the white blossoms smelled very much like uh, like citrus trees. Uh, and, and so that, I think, was the deep memory that that brought back to me. But there were layers of memory. So that then after I came back from Greece, that fragrance of the, of the, of the jasmine reminded me of the lemon blossoms and orange blossoms in, in Crete. And now that I live in Tucson, Arizona, I just love the smell of the, the orange blossoms and uh, all over the city. It's just amazing. It's interesting. It seems like there's this pattern of 
what are the triggers of good memories and feel good hormones, right? And it, yes, the absolutely. Tri- the triggers can be visual or um, through smell. You've or got sound. it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's how memory works. There are subtle triggers, which are through any one of your senses. You know, Proust, the French writer of the 19th century, wrote about the Madeleine and the tea that he tasted. And he had this wonderful, when he was sick, he had this wonderful feeling that came over him, this warm feeling. And the first 40 pages of Remembrance of Things Past are describing him eating this Madeleine and tea. So some people find it a little bit long to talk about. But really, it's a perfect description of the neuroscience of how memory works. He he had the warm feeling as soon as he tasted the cookie and drank the tea, but he couldn't place why did he have that feeling. And it took him 40 pages to figure out that it was because when he was a sick child, his aunt would give him uh, that kind of cookie, the madeleine and the tea, and he that made him feel warm and taken care of by his aunt. So taste is a very, very powerful trigger of positive memories and positive emotions. Uh, I'll tell you another story of that. When my father was dying, um, it was now about 30 years ago, he, um, he had been, uh, he had uh, some sort of dementia, Parkinson's disease, and had been sick for, for a number of years and had not really recognized me, you know, for the for the longest time. And when I was called to the emergency room to, to go up, fly from, again, Washington to Montreal, uh, the doctor said, you have to come now. It's not much longer that he has to live. I happened to have been in the kitchen with my daughter, who at the time was about 10 years old, and we were making kumquat jam because a colleague of mine from California had brought me a bag of kumquats from his kumquat tree. So I think there's a thread here that I like citrus. <laughs> but so we were making kumquat jam and I got the call to fly up. So I've got on the next plane and I just I put a jar of kumquat jam in my uh, handbag, which you could do at that time. And um because my father's favorite jam used to be kumquat jam. So I got to his bedside, he was unconscious, and I whispered in his ear, I said, you know, I'm here, and no response. I touched him, I uh, touched his forehead, no response. And then I had the idea, I took a spoon, and I took a little bit of that kumquat jam, and I put it on his tongue. And he had the most wonderful smile. And that was that was his goodbye oh, to me. Wow. And, and so, uh, you know, taste, smell, bring back memories, happy memories, positive feelings. You know, so you can put, again, I, 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 I'm allergic to a lot of stuff, so I don't really, I can't put fake fragrances in my house. But real fragrances, like those uh, plants that have a fragrance, uh, that's, for me, that's very important. Um, 
you know, you can, when you're going to sleep at night, if you have trouble sleeping, you can use a little bit of lavender spray, or that's the whole basis of aromatherapy. So that's, you know, the fragrance is what you smell, what you taste, and a lot of taste is also smell. Um, what we talked about, what we see, but we didn't talk about light. Full spectrum sunlight is really, really important. So I'm sitting here in my home office and you, you can't see what I'm looking at. I'm looking at a window. Um, my computer is facing a window on a beautiful desert garden. And, um, and that's really important. If you're in any space that uh, where you're working, where you're studying, uh, full spectrum sunlight is very important. And that's because it improves moods. People who have a form of depression called seasonal affective disorder, uh, which they get depressed during periods of long, long periods of low light in northern climates. Um, they come down to the south, so we have a lot of snowbirds who come to Tucson in the winter, and um, it's rejuvenating. And the reason is full-spectrum sunlight really does improve moods. It is as effective in treating this form of depression, seasonal affective disorder, as any drug. And you know, if you don't have the advantage of sitting next to a, a window that is sunny, um, then you can put uh, full-spectrum sunlight boxes. There's artificial light that mimics the sunlight, and um, and you can put those around. I've been um, wondering if there were yeah, artificial... Yes. Okay, great. They're used in treatment of seasonal affective disorder, and you can certainly place them around your computer. There are studies that uh, our colleagues at the General Services Administration have done uh, with the federal government and colleagues at the uh, RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, who are experts in lighting. And you can certainly put those around the computer uh, if you're spending a lot of time you know, looking at this blue screen. Now, you have to be careful because if you have them on all day, then you're going to be really awake and zinged. Uh, I mean, full-spectrum sunlight in the afternoon is probably as good a, a wake-up as a cup of coffee. Um, so you have to be careful that as the day wanes, you don't want to have too much exposure to the sunlight. You want to mimic what is... Um, you know, the natural light and the natural circadian rhythm is what we call it. So there's there's uh, smell, taste, light. What did we leave out? Um, A question about light. If you are sleepy in the afternoon and you want to maybe try and avoid the coffee for the uh -huh. caffeine pickup, how, how much time in the full spectrum light will give the effect of waking you up? Oh, well, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, one of the things that's that's a good thing to do is not only look at full spectrum sunlight, but if you're sleepy, go out and walk in it, um, and that's the best thing because both exercise and uh, light will wake you up. And and you know, in that case, it's recommended. Well, 30 minutes of exercise a day walking, and it can be in small segments, like 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there, uh, will certainly give you more uh, more energy. I don't I don't know if there's a minimum, um, you know, amount. It wouldn't it be might, a couple. It might depend on where you live too. Well, it, you know, there are studies again by uh, Maria uh, Mariana Figuero at RPI Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, where she has looked at this. Um, and for example, blue light in waking people up in the middle of the night, even just a short flash of it 
will actually wake up your brain when you're uh, when you should be trying to sleep. Um, so it doesn't take very long uh, to um, for the for the light to stimulate you. And another question: Do you how is how strong is the science on aromatherapy? Well, there's certainly there's a lot of science. This is what we I talked about in the book, and I just talked about now on the neuroscience. So sensory neuroscience is a very strong, very well researched field, and to the extent that one can take the principles that are learned from sensory neuroscience, that is understanding the path, the neural pathways of smell, how they tap into memory, how those memories tap into emotions, how the emotions tap into the stress and relaxation response. And that's what I try to do in the book. It's not necessarily a direct study to show how each different aromatherapy um, modality works, but there is very strong neuroscience underpinning understanding how the sense of smell connects to the rest of the brain that we then know can help you heal and certainly can calm you. So at the Monell uh, Center for the Chemical Senses in Philadelphia, we did this in our, in the uh, PBS show, uh, The Science of Healing. I also went there and again, was the guinea pig. And what they do is they look at the, the combination of the sense of smell and what you see. And uh, and those two interact as well. And they put me in a, uh, my head was in a, a sort of a plexiglass um, box. And they said they're going to put in a tiny amount of, uh, of something that's going to, I'm going to smell whatever it is they put in. They didn't tell me what it was. And at the same time, I'm looking at a, either a beautiful view or a smokestack. So when I saw the smokestack, the, the puff of whatever they put in there to me sounded like, smelled like burning rubber. And when I saw the beautiful view of the forested mountain, what they, the puff of smell to me smelled fresh. I couldn't tell what it was. And then they told me that it was actually just a puff of air or something. And I, I must be very, uh, very susceptible to, uh, to what I see. I have a very strong visual sense. So, um, so there are connections in the brain that way. Um, and there are certainly connections in the brain between what you smell and memory. And then there are chemicals, for example, lavender. Lavender uh, actually does cause uh, animals to sleep. There are studies that show that rats, when they uh, are given uh, inhaled lavender, <laughs> uh, so you know they have actually EEG, you know, brainwave changes uh, that show that they're they're sleeping. And you know you can't say, well, the rat remembered that the grandmother gave lavender to him. You know, it's clearly there are brain pathways that this chemical lavender can trigger a calming response. There are many examples of of different kinds of chemicals because after all, what are fragrances but chemicals that are in the air? They're volatile organic compounds that you inhale and they they can have direct effects on the brain's relaxation response great and music or sound oh we forgot about sound <laughs> i could be and, forget about and sound sil- you know and silence yes definitely so 
uh, there's a lot of studies, tremendous studies on uh, on music and sound and emotions. Um, books have been written on it. In, and again, in our PBS television show, The Science of Healing, uh, Julian Thayer, who is a psychophysiologist, world famous in measuring the relaxation response through uh, through the uh, heart rate, measuring the heart rate variability, that is the variability between the beats. So Julian Thayer is not only a world famous psychophysiologist, he is also a famous jazz musician. And uh, he got into the field of uh, psychophysiology because he started off as a jazz musician. And he wondered why it was that his compositions could affect people's moods so deeply. And so there's a large science of music and emotions and music and the brain. Um, some of the people who do this the best, who can use sound and music to change your emotions, either to make you anxious or fearful or calm or happy, those are the uh, composers who compose movie scores. Uh, so we've worked with a seven-time Emmy award-winning film uh, scorer who has, uh, it's, it's part of their trade. They know how to show a, a film, uh, a silent film uh, of, of whatever, and then put overlay different kinds of musical scores, and it will change your emotions. And there are studies that show that you can measure heart rate variability, that is measure the stress and relaxation response, uh, in people who are listening to different kinds of music, and you can see the changes in their stress response uh, in relation to the music. I mean, when I, I don't like scary movies, and and uh, you know, if I see on TV, I'm flipping through channels, and I see something that to me looks scary, um, I, I'll turn the sound off, and then it calms me because okay, well, I'm not going to watch it anyway, but, um, but, but it reduces that, that emotion because you take away that, that, uh, that sound. We, um, you know, what sounds... About, what is it about mu music that can be so powerful? Is it the, like, the patterns and the... It's, people have done these studies. It's all of the above. It's the timbre, it's the pitch, it's the patterns, it's... And, you know, I'm not a music expert, but uh, there are studies that have, you know, shown this uh, and, and analyze it. But really, again, it's combinations of all of the above that are most effective, not single single notes or single single changes. Um, have, you, you talk looked, have you looked at the science on uh, chanting Sanskrit? Oh, okay. Now, that's a different... That's a different thing. So in the book, I actually talk about this. So one thing is listening to music, and the other thing is singing it. Uh, and so they're two different things, and people have studied this. So uh, when you're actually singing, you are deep breathe, breathing deeply. You are doing all kinds of physical things that can help relax you. However, there are studies that looked at professional musicians, professional singers versus just the rest of us. And while singing and group singing and chanting can certainly reduce your stress response if you're, um, if you're not a professional, it, 
professionals, it tends to increase their stress response because they are actually performing. So, but in general, what singing does, chanting, all of these things, it helps you breathe deeply and breathing deeply triggers your relaxation response. So I talked about the brain's stress response and all those adrenaline-like nerve chemicals and hormones like and cortisol that comes from the adrenal glands. Well, there is an opposite system in the body called the relaxation response. And the vagus nerve is a very important piece of the relaxation response. It's a big nerve that goes through your whole abdomen to your liver and your heart and it can and your chest of course for the heart and it controls the speed of the beating of the heart <clears throat> when you when you trigger the vagus nerve the heart rate slows down um, you know athletes have a slower heart rate but stronger pumping when you're anxious adrenaline speeds the heart and it's also pumps more shallowly so it's not as effective in 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 feeding your whole body with with that oxygen that comes from the blood so the relaxation response is like the break to the stress response and deep breathing triggers that relaxation response you inhale and and you exhale slowly and that triggers that vagus nerve and the relaxation response. So that is happening when you're chanting or singing, when you're exercising, when you're swimming, it's happening when you're walking a labyrinth, slow walking meditation, slowing your breathing, that's the relaxation response that triggers, that kicks in. So to the extent that you can fill your home with the kinds of things that will trigger your relaxation response, that can also so uh, help you stay happy, healthy, and heal. And what about silence? Silence. Well, I, I particularly love silence. Um, I think silence, especially silence in nature, is not completely silence. It allows you... So again, this is, this is really mindfulness meditation. If you quiet yourself, if you quiet your mind and you sit and you listen to the silence, you can begin to hear the tiny, tiny little sounds that you might not have heard before. The rustling of trees, of rustling of leaves in the wind, um, little scritch scratch of little animals, birds chirping. Um, you know, and when it snows in, you know, in Montreal or even when I was in Washington, D.C., when it snows, the silence is a much deeper silence because the snow muffles everything. But there's still some sounds, you know, you're walking on the snow and you hear the crunch, the crunch underneath your feet. Um, uh, so silence is a beautiful thing and can help calm your mind and calm your moods. And the, the science on meditation and how it affects our health is pretty strong now. Correct? It's extremely strong. So Richie Davidson was one of the pioneers in this area. And, and again, when we were all part of a MacArthur Foundation mind-body network back in the 90s, and and, you know, we came about 15 researchers from across the country, and Richie Davidson was one. Uh, and, 
in each in our own institutions, uh, we we had a lot of pushback from the uh, academic scientists and uh, medical uh, community that said, "Oh, meditation, that's not." real. I mean, that's not, there's, there's no science to it. But Ritchie really did uh, the, the landmark studies where he looked at brain EEG changes, so uh, brainwave changes, um, uh, MRI changes, so brain imaging changes, looking at changes in blood flow in different parts of the brain. Um, and, um, and he was able to show that during during a meditative state, there are very important changes in the brain uh, that are not completely, it's not that the brain goes to sleep, that nothing is happening. They really are active changes in parts of the brain that are important in resilience. So when he first started doing these studies back in the in the 90s, he he looked at he he was studying students who who were learning how to meditate, and and the data was all over the map. He he couldn't make sense of it, and and right at that time he he got a fax. He tells the story that he got a fax from the Dalai Lama saying that he's interested in 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 understanding the science of meditation. So Richie Davidson started working with the Dalai Lama and his monks who are really the Olympic athletes of meditation. They can really meditate. They're experts. And, and he found in those athletes, in, in those expert meditators, that there were these very consistent changes in brain patterns, including something that's really interesting because they're a different kind of electrical wave called gamma waves that suddenly come across the whole brain and kind of connect the whole brain when the monks achieve this, this state of meditation of the ultimate um, uh, uh, state of meditation, of compassionate meditation. And so again, we don't fully understand what those, those mean, but, but there are definite uh, changes in meditation uh, in the brain during meditation. And these are changes that also trigger that relaxation response and reduce the stress response. When I was moderating a panel at one of Richie Davidson's mind-body conferences, um, I was moderating a panel with the Dalai Lama, and the panel was about um, whether meditation can be used to reduce stress and help heal. And uh, I asked the Dalai Lama if, um, you know, I, I said, I understand that meditation, that stress is not a word in the Tibetan tradition, but here in the West, we use meditation to reduce stress. And can you, what do you think about that? And he shook his head and he didn't want to answer. And, uh, and then finally he said, no, no, meditation, um, uh, stress is not a term in the Tibetan tradition, but we use meditation for love. That's it. It's as simple as that, to increase love. And, but, but from a neuroscience point of view, increasing the positive, increasing those positive love pathways, dopamine, endorphins, those positive emotions, is not only as good as reducing stress, but it's better than reducing stress because those brain changes 
do reduce stress and they also enhance the positive. So there's tremendous research and tremendous literature showing the benefits of meditation, different kinds of meditation, mindfulness meditation, um, compassion meditation, and so on. Is it compassion meditation that is proven to be the most healing? Uh, you know, they're talking about meditation. Again, this is Richie Davidson's quote. Um, saying the word meditation is saying the, is like saying the word sports. You know, it's like there's so many different kinds of meditation that get you to a place of calm and healing. Uh, it's kind of like saying basketball is, you know, and volleyball and, and golf are, are all the same. They're not the same. But meditation is also like prayer. So um, <clears throat> there are studies also in, uh, in nuns who uh, visualize, um, you know, uh, who visualize during prayer. Um, there are studies of uh, people uh, repeating the rosary. And so that's kind of auditory uh, or, or vocal uh, re repetitions. And, and all of those things activate the same parts of the brain. You just get there in different ways. And what helps one person may not help another, you know, that some people may prefer or may, may have a, a response by doing the rosary, some by visualizing, some by deep breathing, some by saying, um, um, you know, it's, there are just many ways to get to that place. And, and it really depends on the individual. So it's not one size fits all. And individuals can try out different approaches. For me, you know, again, going back to Greece, and if you, if you watch the PBS uh, uh, show, which I think you can get on pbs.org, um, you know, I say in the show that I'm contemplating. I wasn't ready back then. That was about 2009, 10 years ago. I wasn't ready to say I'm meditating. I didn't know I was meditating until I met a 40-year meditator. And he asked me, what, what do you exactly do when you're contemplating? And I said, well, I close my eyes and I uh, sit quietly and I listen. And I listen to the birds and I listen to the the sounds of the wind in the, in the leaves. And he said, you're meditating. That's mindfulness meditating. Uh, and I just, I didn't even know it. So uh, anybody can do it anywhere. And uh, you just try what the, the method that works for you. I thought it was very interesting when I was watching some of your videos you talking about when you early in your career when you started studying stress and and uh -huh. whether it could contribute to health issues or autoimmune issues it was that was like a very novel provocative idea and now there's such strong science proving that stress is very important to health and well-being mm -hmm. so you've you've experienced how slow science can be <laughs> to yeah. prove a truth. And so I right. thought you would be an interesting person to ask generally, because I feel like the more I learn, the more humbled I become about how little we know. And uh -huh. there's something really wise about knowing that we don't know, we know a small percentage of even just how the human body right. works. Do you agree? Do you have Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So 
I think an example of that is in the book I write about Lourdes and the uh, the uh, the south in the southwest of France where people go for miracle cures, and. Um, I went there with a, a dear friend of my parents who, after my parents died, I, I kind of became their adopted uh, American daughter. They, they lived in, they live in um, Lyon, France, and um, unfortunately the, the husband has, has since died, but he, uh, he was a confirmed atheist, and his wife was a devout Catholic. And uh, she used, she grew up near Lourdes, and she would go there every summer with her family. And um, and in her adulthood, she continued to go to to Lourdes. And um, when I was writing the book Healing Spaces, my friend said, "Well, you can't write about Healing Spaces without going to Lourdes." And I said, "Well, it's hard to get there." And they said, "No, no, no. Fly to Lyon, and we'll drive across the south." west of, of uh, France and we'll, we'll take you to Lourdes. So we did that. And they were friends with the uh, archbishop of the next diocese, the archbishop of Osh. So he introduced me to the doctor, the chief doctor of Lourdes. And, and people come there, it's a shrine to the Virgin Mary where um, uh, Bernadette Subiru, who was a peasant girl back in the late 1800s, had uh, witnessed, had seen uh, visions of uh, the Virgin Mary, and then uh, healings had taken place. And, and so from the late 1800s on, people would, pilgrims, um, millions of pilgrims have gone there for healing. And so I asked the doctor, what, what is it about this place that that helps people heal. And, and he said, well, of course, it's the mountains, it's the sunlight, it's the, the river, it's the, uh, it's the beauty of the place, the rocks, and it is beautiful. The sunlight comes through the mountains there. It's sort of filtered in this beautiful mist. And, um, and they, everything takes place outdoors, or at least most of the, the grotto where, uh, where, Bernadette Subaru saw the visions of, of the Virgin Mary is outdoors, and the processions are outdoors. So you're in nature, and and but you're also in the middle of this bustling town that has sells a lot of uh, you know a, a lot of souvenirs related to the to the um, uh, the the grotto and and to the Virgin Mary. Um, and, and there's the water from the source, where which is the healing water, and and but what the what the doctor said is it's not just the physical place, it's about the people here. People come to help other people. There's love in the air. It is the most amazing thing. There's strangers helping strangers, people showing love, genuine love to the sick. Um, so there is that that really helps. So there's the social connections that help people heal. And, and then above it all, there's the history and the, and the legend, which is very powerful in helping people heal. So why am I telling this story? You said there's a lot that we don't know. Um, Bernard, my uh, friend who's a physician, and he was, you know, uh, very, he believed in only things that we could prove. He got so interested in the miracle cures at Lourdes that he spent five years researching the, the cures. He talked to the doctor, the chief doctor, the previous chief doctor, 
he he ended up writing a manuscript which we wrote together and published a paper on the uh, in a his journal of uh, uh, his of history of medicine and uh, trying to explain what are the, what is the science that explains these cures and you know there is a science you could imagine if somebody is uh, extremely stressed and then they come into this wonderful environment where there's a lot of helping hands that reduces your stress response that could allow your body to heal um, so certainly in tuberculosis and arthritis which were a lot of the cures in the uh, late 1800s early 1900s but he ended the article and these were his own words there there are many things that we cannot explain in science and we just have to leave it at that and accept that we cannot understand everything. So especially coming from that physician who was so convinced of the, um, uh, the need for concrete proof to say there are things that we cannot understand, uh, to me and to the editor of the journal, it was very, very powerful. Yes. Three more questions. One is the, earlier we were talking about chronic stress and the the health effects from that. Are there easy ways to know if you're experiencing chronic stress? When I was listening to you, I thought about many children in Manhattan and just children in general. Anxiety yeah. is higher than ever. Are there blood tests to know if? like your inflammation is elevated? Uh, well, there's certainly blood tests to know that your inflammation is elevated. There are, um, uh, you know, you can measure cortisol, but cortisol uh, reflects your stress in the moment. And the needle stick, it could be simply the cortisol going up. Plus, you need your cortisol, you need that stress response in order to have the energy to have focused attention, to fight or flee. You need that stress response. You cannot survive without a stress response. In Manhattan, if you were to have no stress response and you had to cross the street, you'd be dead, yeah. right? You have to be able to be vigilant, look where the cars are coming. You have to be able to um, uh, concentrate, to, to you know, get across the street fast. You have to have the energy to do that. That's your stress response working for you. The problem goes happens if it goes on too long, and and that's where you have the problem. And you know, so there are situations like burnout. Burnout is a serious problem, and uh, you can feel depressed, lethargic, not have energy, um, have difficulty sleeping, uh, you lose your appetite, you're um, you know losing weight. Uh, if you feel anxious, um, all of those things are signs that you might be chronically stressed or even uh, depressed. Um, and it would be a reason to see a doctor to check you out. So I think if anybody feels that they're chronically stressed, that it's a good thing to see a health professional and, and get checked out. Okay. Second, I've been very, very interested in resiliency and mm -hmm. or healing and uh -huh. I'm wondering what are your what comments do you have to share about the opportunity for our resiliency I know that we are healing all the time and when we sleep especially if we have good quality sleep the healing is even more powerful 
But if there might be a lot of people out there who think, oh, it's too late for me for X, Y, and Z reasons, what are your reactions to the opportunities we have to heal? It's never too late. Um, so I guess I was an example of that. I had been following a sedentary lifestyle. I told you exercise every day, 30 minutes of exercise a day is really important. Um, you know, I'd been eating hamburgers and French fries and, and you know, for, for lunch. Um, I, I was, you know, sedentary, had a, an unhealthy diet. I was, uh, I was uh, stressed because of uh, there's number of stressors in my life. And, and yet, when I had this aha moment in, in Greece, that if I continued to function the way I was before I left, um, I would just keep getting sicker. And I felt so much better only after 10 days. Now, people can say, oh, well, you just had a vacation. Well, a vacation is a good thing. Um, actually, you know, in Germany and Italy, a doctor can prescribe six weeks at a spa for burnout. Wow. So, yeah. Um, so, um, you know, it's not just the vacation. It is getting away from those stressors, but also engaging in those healthy activities. And that's really important. And there are studies, so for example, Dean Ornish has shown that people who are chronically stressed, who have, um, they had a history of prostate cancer, a man with a history of prostate cancer, um, if they follow this routine of 30 minutes of walking a day, it doesn't have to be on the treadmill, it's just 30 minutes of walking a day, um, uh, a healthy Mediterranean diet and mindfulness meditation three times a week. If they follow that for five years, their chromosomes, which I mentioned, the chromosomes can be 10 to 17 years shorter than your biological age if you're chronically stressed. Not only did their chromosomes stop shortening, but they actually lengthened. Hmm. As opposed to people in that study who didn't follow that regime, and their chromosomes continue to shorten. So it doesn't matter when you start, you can always begin to reverse the process. And it's really a lifestyle change. And that's what we, I'm here, the reason I left the National Institutes of Health and came to uh, Andrew Weil's Center for Integrative Medicine. I had the research program here at Andrew Weil's Center for Integrative Medicine. The reason I came here is to, to really begin to understand how all of these different modalities can help us uh, heal. And, and again, it does not matter when you start. You'll always be able to improve that resilience if you engage in these healthy lifestyle changes. So my last question is just, is there anything else that you would like to share that we haven't covered? Well, I can share one of the stories that I tell at the end of my book, which really it's about my own healing place. And it tells the story of how when when I was a child, uh, we would sit outside on the terrace on that deck that my mother had built. And I'd sit there and have breakfast with my father. And it was only about a decade after the end of the war, World War II. And he would say, he'd stop, he'd always read a book when he was eating. And, and he'd stop and he'd say to me, listen, 
listen to the sounds of peace. And I was about, what, six, seven years old, something like that. And, and I say, what is he talking about? I hear a dog barking. I hear the tennis balls, the puck puck of the tennis balls and the tennis court across the street. I hear the wind and the trees and, you know, didn't I couldn't understand. It was only when I was an adult that I really understood what he was talking about because he reveled in listening to these sounds of peace. It's a little like what you said of the silence, sounds of silence. And I didn't know until his funeral, until the Shiva when we sit after the funeral in the Jewish tradition, I didn't know that he had been in a concentration camp during the war. And uh, one of the friends who came said, of course, you knew that your father was in a concentration camp. I said, I didn't know that. Uh, it wasn't in a German uh, concentration camp. It was in, uh, in Russia, in a place called Transnistria. Um, so it was more like a work camp, but he never talked about it. He never talked about it. I think they wanted to really protect, my parents wanted to protect us, my sister and, and me, from this horrible, uh, their experiences that they had gone through. And, and at that point, I understood something else about my father. When we would, when we would eat dinner, often he would pull the Bible off the shelf and he'd read the 23rd Psalm. It was his favorite Psalm. And he would have this look of wisdom and calm when he'd read it. Um, the, uh, now let me see if I can remember it. it. You know, he leads me by the still waters. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I think when my father was in that concentration camp, I can imagine that he didn't have a view of nature. He couldn't go out into nature, but he could visualize this. He could hear it in his mind. He could think that beautiful poem, that beautiful song, and that could give him a sense of peace. So if you can't actually physically experience the beautiful views and the plants and the sounds of peace and the fragrances of the forest, um, you can go to a favorite place in your mind uh, and experience it. So that's the only thing I would leave everyone with. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Podcast show notes can be found at my website at nontoxicliving.tips. To more easily listen to other episodes, please subscribe to the Practical Non-Toxic Living Podcast. And if you'd like to support it, then please like it and share it. Until next time.